Nice to see everyone. So we've been examining, reflecting, hopefully on the second noble truth. And uh, I mean, the reality is we've been hearing about letting go for a long time. It's nothing new for us to know that happiness has something to do with letting go and suffering has something to do with not being able to let go. So keeping that in mind, we want to bring some humility to our discussion tonight and to our personal reflections during the week about what is this thing that people mean when they say letting go. What are we talking about here? But first, let me just say a few things about the meditation instructions, because I know some of you are working with these 16 instructions. We didn't go through all 16 tonight, but but in terms of letting go, the first set of four were basically tuning into the body and letting go of control, letting go of having opinions. You know, when we start working with breathing and feeling the whole body, well, we can't actually be intimate with the sensations of the body if we have opinions about the sensations that are being experienced in that moment. So we're purifying the mind in terms of its relationship to the body. We're purifying the mind of ignorance, of taking the experience of the body personally. We're letting that go. And the body is the relationship, the mind's relationship to the body as a a process of nature. And that's why we talk about breathing in, experiencing calm or calming the body, breathing out, calming the body. Because when the mind is aware of the body as a movement, a force of nature, then there aren't any problems with the body sensations. There's no disturbance. The body may, you know, the sensations of the body are going to be the way they are, but there isn't a mind having a problem with the way the body is. That's what gets purified. Not the actual sensations, although a lot of the unpleasant sensations in our body are a reflection of our mind having a problem with the body because the mind and body are reflecting each other quite a bit. So if I'm here with a bad attitude about my body, then my body, the actual sensations, reflect that mental tension. And then the knowing mind that has opinions and a problem with the body sees that reverberation in the body that's unpleasant and you see, you got a feedback system going there and a big problem. So the first set of the set of the first set of four instructions, it's really about finding some freedom in the body by letting go of view or letting go of a way of relating to the body that's problematic. We're healing the mind's relationship to the body. And then the second set of instructions that we've been spending a lot of time with the last several weeks. It's really purifying the mind's relationship to feeling tone. You see, these correspond to the four foundations of mindfulness. So we're the first in that second set of four. The first is to experience joy, experience ease. So we're making this as easy as possible by highlighting the pleasant experiences. And then with the Third, in that second set of four, 
breathing in, being aware of feeling, breathing out, being aware of feeling. We're learning to just be with the pleasant or whatever feeling arises, but we're purifying the wrong view that the feeling is personal or I personally want to hold on or personally want to get rid of. We're learning to be empty. So there's an awareness, an intimacy with feeling, but nothing else, just the awareness. So breathing in, and the breath continues as a sort of a structure for the awareness or a support for the awareness. So while breathing in, noticing whatever feeling tone is there. And remember, you don't have to look for feeling tone. Whatever the mind is knowing, notice that that has a feeling. It feels like this. So don't complicate this. This is very simple feeling, knowing the feeling. And remember, you don't have to tell yourself in language, oh, this is a pleasant feeling, or this is an unpleasant feeling, or this is a neutral feeling. The important thing is connection. And so maybe every once in a long while, asking the question or wondering if it's pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant might actually help you connect with the feeling because the mind sort of needs that support, needs that question. Is this pleasant? Is this, you know, knowing this thought, this thought flickering through the mind, is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neutral? Is the tendency of the mind to want it? Is the tendency of the mind to want to push away, get rid of it? Is the tendency of the mind to ignore it because it's neutral? So we're just looking and letting it be. And the more the mind has a this wise relationship to feeling, then because it's the reaction to feeling that triggers so much mental agitation, we'll notice the quieting. That's the fourth instruction in the second set of four. Breathing in uh, usually gets translated as calming the mental formations, calming the activity of the mind. Breathing out, calming the activity of the mind. Because that's what happens when the mind relates wisely to feeling. Things really settle down in the mind. And then the second set of four, which we haven't talked too much, is just the awareness of the mind, the space and the activity of mind. And here we're, of course, feeling tone is an aspect of the mind, but now we're looking at the other activities of the mind, perception and just associated intentions or motivations that dispositions that arise in the mind, mental stuff, right? Breathing in, aware of that mental activity happening here in the space of the mind. While breathing out, aware of mental activity. And we're aware of the mental activity happening here. It's that awareness that there's a space in which this mental activity is happening that gives the mind space. So it doesn't take the mental activity as personally. Right, which then leads to the greater stillness, which is the third instruction in the third set of four. And then the fourth is, here it's translated as releasing the mind. But it's it's releasing um, the more subtle aspect of wanting to control or identify the mind. The mind sort of as a personal thing that releases and it's just free or the activity of nature. And then the last set we're purifying sort of the underlying 
relationship to the mind itself. And I don't want to go into that too much tonight. But just to, you know, it's really nice to have our sitting meditation and the instructions or the way that we work or train our mind to be in a very direct and practical way. We're learning each time we sit for half an hour or an hour, we're learning something about letting go, putting down the load, being free. If we're really interested in the unconditioned or liberation, then in a very simple, direct, immediate, practical way, we practice freedom, being free with the body, being free with feeling tone, being free with mental activity, being free with whatever the mind is taking this to be. So even free of like, I've got to fix that view. We don't have to. We just have to understand that's just a view, just a, an opinion or just a way of seeing things. So if my mind's taking things personally, do I personally have to get in there and get rid of that view? Or is it as simple as understanding that's just a view, just a movement of nature? So we're basically uprooting in that last set, uprooting the idea that I'm an, you know, an unenlightened being who has to practice in order to be enlightened. Because the attachment to that idea of a pra- being a practitioner is stressful, is problematic. And so I sent out that article by the Bhikkhuni Medanandi last week, the, what is it called again? The Way of the Mystic. And I think she must have been giving a talk to um, people who are in the midst of grieving. Sounds like it maybe was back a while when there was more of an AIDS crisis, um, or at least was making the news more, and uh, other people grieving the loss of loved ones. And so here we're letting go of the mind. You know, it's always about with the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, there's something the mind doesn't want to let go of. So like in the case of uh, terrible loss, the mind doesn't want to let go of the idea that this is unacceptable. So it's very interesting how in graphic ways she talked about that and pulled on some of the stories from the suttas, some of the really famous stories that I'm sure many of you have heard, as well as this woman from the uh, World War II, the Holocaust, Ellie, forgetting her last name, uh, Eddie, I'm sorry, Eddie Helsum, is that how you say it? If you haven't read it, you might want to, it's a pretty short article. Hilsum, Hilasum maybe. She wrote, or her diary was found. She was killed eventually um, in one of the concentration camps. But she kept a diary and from her writings, she seems like she had very, very deep insight. And it was basically, you know, awareness of body, awareness of feeling, awareness of mind, 
awareness of view. So awareness of what we say our life, but in that that most terrible environment. And it it seems so like the the force of suffering is this is not okay. But why not? Like when when you're in the middle of something really terrible, why why would the heart say no? What what do we gain by that? So somehow she had some intuition to not say no, but to say yes. And she describes in different ways, and you can read this because uh, this Buddhist uh, nun quotes her a number of times in this article, just some passages from her diary about really coming alive in that environment. I'll just read one to give you a sense. I have looked our destruction our miserable end, straight in the eye and accepted it into my life. And I continue to grow from day to day, even with death staring me in the face. For my life has become extended by death. Living and dying, sorrow and joy, the blisters on my feet and the jasmine behind the house, the persecution, the unspeakable horrors, it is all as one in me and I accept it as, and I accept it all as one mighty whole. We must surrender all that is dearest to us in the enjoyment of the senses and go through a dark night in which we live without their help and comfort. Then, when this is accomplished, We have to sacrifice even our thoughts and our choices and undergo a still darker night, deprived of our familiar supports. This is a kind of death. You see how this parallels these four things, like where we learn to just let the body be and then just let feeling be and then drop the control of the thinking mind, the mental activity. And even in the fourth, it's really dropping the mind's dependence on meaning right? It's dependence on a fixed view, whatever that is. I'm an unenlightened practitioner trying to be enlightened or thinking you're enlightened, any view, the mind has to let go of that too. So she's sort of paralleling this in her own way, probably never having studied Buddhism. We have to sacrifice even our thoughts and our choices and undergo a still darker night deprived of our familiar supports This is a kind of death. And when all that has been strained away, our emptiness will be filled with a new presence. And the collection of a diary and letters is called An Interrupted Life and Letters from Westerbork by Eddie Hillesum. So remember, I read the the discourse last week um, where the person 
basically is asking the Buddha about the cause of suffering. And uh, he gives them an example about, well, there are a lot of people dying in your town, right? So why some people, like those who are dear to you, really hurts when they die or when something bad happens, but other people, it's not a big deal. Like I read about the young woman who, I don't know if they figured out if she jumped or got drowned in the Mississippi not too long ago by the U of M. And, uh, you know, my mind, I mean, in all honesty, my mind was interested. It was sort of juicy on some level, not in a, you know, kind of, you know, terrible way, but, but my heart was not moved, you know, because I don't know her. And I didn't, I didn't do any sort of work to make her real to me. But if something happened to my cat, you know, like our earlier cat back in the 90s got hit by a car one night. And when I heard about that, I was on retreat at the time, when I heard about it, it really hurt to think that this being that I loved was hit by a car and killed. So it's really, I know it seems so common, well, of course, but it's really important for us to reflect on that. Like, what is the difference between my cat Bodhi and that young woman that died? What's actually the difference? One really hurts and one didn't hurt. And so we really want to get a sense of what is attachment? What is that? It's a, it's something the mind constructs on its own. It's not that actually Bodhi was worth more than that woman in any sort of way, but it's just that my mind constructed a sense of value around this being and hasn't constructed a value, a personal value around this other being. And of course we do this all the time. So, the interesting thing is, it's not, it's not the same. It's not like we say, okay, so I'm not going to construct value around any being. It's just that we're not going to construct personal value around any being. Be- beings are just beings. Now, clearly some beings we're going to have more relationship with or more time with or know more about. But we still don't have to personalize it. I'm sure sometimes this has happened to you. If not, pay attention to your body in this way. You'll just sort of be looking over there. This is interesting. They they have some sort of perceptual experiments where I forget exactly how it works, but you get a have a fake hand and uh the person thinks it's their hand. Have you seen this? But the idea is to to get a sense, like, of course, habitually, I'll just personalize this visual experience of seeing my arm. But it's not that hard to loosen that view and just start to see your limbs as impersonal visual information. So it's, you get a sense of how the, it's the thing that seems so personal is something the mind has to do. And if it doesn't do it, then that personal feeling goes away. But it's not like the opposite of not, or the end of constructing that personal view isn't that you don't care about everything. 
it's almost like everything comes alive. It's not, you're not having favorites. We want to really be asking ourselves, and you can reflect on this in your small group next week, you know, what actually have you found supports letting go? And one thing I bet you're going to be able to say is wanting to let it, wanting to let go doesn't cause letting go. Thinking that we should let go is another kind of wanting to let go or not letting go. It's sort of like we're demanding something. We're establishing something. So the Buddha says, this is um, quoted in Wings to Awakening um, in the section on the second and third noble truths. For those who have that book, I think I sent the link to the section in Wings to Awakening. Craving and its cessation. This is the Buddha. Now what is the noble truth of the origination of stress? The craving that makes for further becoming, accompanied by passion and delight relishing now here and now there. For example, craving for sensuality, for sense experience, craving for becoming, and craving for non-becoming. And you see the Buddha asks questions. And where does this craving, when arising, arise? And where, when dwelling, does it dwell? Whatever is endearing and alluring in terms of the world, that is where this craving, when arising, arises. And that is where, when dwelling, it dwells. So craving, it needs something in order to arise. It needs something that's alluring and endearing. That's where it arises, and that's where it dwells. And then if you read through this, he goes on and asks another question. Well, what is it that is alluring and endearing to us? And he basically goes on, well... We have these sensitive organs like the eye that sees objects, visual objects, and consciousness that illuminates that. And in Buddhism, we call that contact. When we have the sensitivity of the eye and the ear and the smell and the tongue that tastes and the skin that touches and the mind that thinks, and we have consciousness, then we have contact, contact with an idea or a thought with a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch. And it's these six things, the contact in these six ways, that is endearing and alluring. And not only that, but then with every contact, like I said earlier, there's a feeling, right? And that's endearing and alluring. And not only is there a feeling, there's a perception. So, I see somebody, I see Rebecca, right? That's just sensitivity, seeing, sensing a visual form, illuminated by consciousness. This touches, there's a moment of knowing or contact. That's alluring and endearing because I know Rebecca, I have some experience, Rebecca. So all of that arises as perception or memory, feeling, memory, contact. And then any 
oh, I need to talk to her about the music festival and see if she's willing to organize the kids program comes up or something like that. So that's all the mental formations that arises. All kinds of stuff can come up in that moment of contact. And the Buddha says all of that can be endearing and alluring. And then he asks the question, well, where does craving cease when it ceases? So I'll just, let me just, so besides the contact, there's feeling, perception, intention, craving, you know, proliferation, evaluation. All of this can be endearing and alluring. And what is this, and what is the noble truth of the cessation of stress, the remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving? So what is the noble truth of the cessation of stress? How does it end? It's the remainderless fading, cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving. So craving arises with what's endearing and alluring. And what's endearing and alluring is all the ways that we're sensitive and what the mind does with contact because we're sensitive. It evaluates it has intention, it's motivated, all this sort of stream of activity arises with every sense contact. And craving and all the suffering that arises out of craving, it ceases when there's no craving. And then the Buddha asks, uh, where does this, and where, when being abandoned, is this craving abandoned? And where, when ceasing, does it cease? Wherever Whatever is endearing and alluring in terms of the world, that is where, when being abandoned, this craving is abandoned. That is where, when ceasing, it ceases. Now, this is philosophically important, and it's subtle. So, you know, I subtle for me, I'm guessing it will be subtle for others, but it's important because it really talks, it teaches us a lot about our practice. It's like, the world isn't the problem. The problem is what the thinking mind or the conditioned mind makes of the world. So we're not trying to fix the world. We're ceasing, we're supporting the cessation of the mind mistakenly or uh, sort of misperceiving the world, taking the world to be something it's not. So a craving arises in the mind and it ceases there. We don't, the problem is here and the solution to the problem is here. The entanglement here is here and the disentangling has to be here too. We don't have to go somewhere else. We don't need a different moment for the cessation of craving, for a moment of freedom. Because whatever is the not freedom is being constructed right here and right now. So with the cessation of that inappropriate activity comes the cessation of suffering. Why? And so understanding this, you, you get why in terms of Buddhist practice, we're so tuned in to the, the importance of the present moment and not second-guessing or not thinking that, no, later when the moment's better. But see, this is the place, this is the only place 
to resolve what appears to be my problem in life, like my heart's burdened or weighed down. This is the place to address it. Because you actually need the experience of being burdened, that's the entanglement, to realize the disentanglement. Or you have to see the projection that isn't what it appears to be to see that it's just a projection and it isn't what it appears to be. It seems like it's a personal problem. So you have to look right there where it seems to be a personal problem to see that it's not what it appears to be. And that's why the Buddha says, in terms of dependent arising, he says, when this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. From the cessation of this comes the cessation of that. So, when there's contact, there's feeling. When there's feeling and not wisdom, right? So the conditioned mind knows feeling, then it's going to crave. It's going to get attached to the pleasantness of it or to the unpleasantness of it. And it's going to grasp. And it's going to want to be the one, become the person who gets to have this pleasant feeling. Or it's going to want to become the person who gets rid of this unpleasant feeling. Or want to become the person that doesn't care about these neutral feelings. And so the mind constructs that, literally constructs that sense of somebody who wants to become the one who gets that pleasant feeling. And that sets up the experience of vulnerability. The whole, like it's often translated, the whole mass of suffering comes out of that becoming. Becoming the one who wants, who needs, who's dependent. Dependent on body, dependent on feeling, dependent on mental activity, dependent on meaning even. The constructed sense of self in some way. Upon hearing these teachings on dependent origination, um, Ananda, Venerable Ananda, the person who uh, took care of the Buddha in many ways for a couple decades, several decades, and he was also his cousin and a very important teacher um, at the time and after the time of the Buddha. And he said to the Buddha, uh, being so inspired by these teachings about like when there's this, there's that. With the arising of this comes the arising of that. When there's not this, there's not that. With the cessation of this comes the cessation of that. So for there to be the sense of suffering there are these supporting conditions. Some come from the past. And this is this will really help us understand the importance of feeling tone as a place to practice, like we did in the guided meditation tonight. Because the feeling that this experience is providing right now, whatever experience you're having right now, hearing these words or feeling your body, whatever your mind is attending to right now, there's a feeling. That feeling is uh comes out of this linear process we call karma, right? The feeling the mind has right now associated with the experience that's being known is a conditioned happening. Because the mind has interpreted 
similar like experiences in the past to be pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, then now it recognizes this experience and a, and a particular feeling comes. And there's nothing we can do about the feeling that arises. So if somebody does something to you, you know, looks at you a particular way that you take to be uh, uh, a look of friendliness, then that will have a pleasant feeling tone. They're, that way of them relating to you, their body language, seeing their body language, will have a pleasant feeling tone. And it's like karma. That's the karmic fruit of what was set in motion before. Now, that's like when with the arising of that seeing is the arising of that feeling. That sort of linear development. But then there's something that's happening right in the moment. What is wisdom in the mind, however strong that wisdom is, what is it taking that feeling to be? My feeling, just to make it simple, or just the feeling being known? So there's two things. One is inevitable. Whenever there's sense contact, there's going to be a feeling. That's a karmic fruit of whatever was set in motion before. We have to deal with that. But we there's choices. We can train the mind to deal with that, to relate to that with wisdom. How are we going to relate to feeling? We can't change. So this is like, True too, like we would like, we think, you know, when we practice for over 30 years now, for me, I would like to think that when something happens in my life, I wouldn't get all defensive or I wouldn't get all neurotic. But there it is, you know, the strong feeling comes, really unpleasant feeling or really confusing feeling. And so it'd be nice seems at least, not to be sensitive to these strong feelings or not to be vulnerable, especially the unpleasant, well, only the unpleasant ones, right? I mean, isn't that how we feel? Like, we'd like to be immune so when somebody treats us a certain way, it wouldn't hurt. But that's not our practice. Our practice is to be able to be hurt. That's why Sister Medanandi talks about it as a holocaust. He uses an obviously very provocative term on purpose. Because to teach us not to shrink from the strong feelings, not to assume or imagine they shouldn't be strong. The very beautiful feelings and the very unpleasant feelings. And the the kind of numb or desert-like or flat-like feelings. I mean, any kind of feeling that can be felt will be felt. And in fact, as we do our practice, we're also becoming more calm and sensitive. So it like all feelings are amplified because of the steadiness of attention. We become more sensitive. So when somebody looks at us the wrong way, the unpleasantness of it will be stronger. And somebody looks at us the right way. And it's like this mystical merging experience with the other person. And we feel like, you know, we've had a moment that will define my life forever. If we misinterpret 
the strong, pleasant feeling. So, our practice is not to be confused by feeling. And that's why the instructions, you know, the three insights for the second noble truth, there is a cause. It's the attachment to desire. The attachment, the cause for suffering is being attached to the desire that arises around feeling. Craving only arises around feeling. What else would the mind crave? It's the feeling it craves. This is what the Buddha saw by really deconstructing his experience, that there's contact, there's feeling, and there's craving if there's not wisdom there. Because that's what the mind does. But with wisdom, there can be contact, feeling, and understanding. Just feeling. Just a very strong, pleasant feeling. Just a very strong, unpleasant feeling. Just a very strong, neutral feeling. Just a very weak this or weak that. It's just a feeling. So the instruction, there is a cause, attachment to desire, attachment to feeling. It should be abandoned. The attachment, the misunderstanding, the misperception, the misconstruing of the desire, of the attachment to the feeling should be abandoned. So that's that patience. What did she call it? The fanatical patience. Remember that? (laughs) It's like another person uh, translated a line from the Buddhist teachings on patience. He said, patience is the supreme incinerator of our mental torments. You know, the the suffering of attachment is the supreme incinerator. Because we have to stay with the feeling We have to be patient with the feeling and learn. This is why it takes patience. We're learning that it's okay for the sensitive heart to feel what we feel in life. It can feel our heart is capable of feeling the whole extreme. And that's why this young woman, Edie or Eddie, who was in the Holocaust is such a powerful example for us because you're guessing, I'm guessing, she felt things, right? Seeing that, seeing her whole tribe be exterminated like that, that must have been an extreme feeling. And uh, this Bhikkhuni, Medanandi, her, I forget if it was her grandfather, I guess it was her grandfather was in the Holocaust and uh, he had some real useful skills and so they offered for him to go to the uh, one of the factories, but he he said no, and he he uh, went with the rest of his family, and uh, I don't know how she found out, but maybe through a relative that he died holding his granddaughters um, in his hands and his arms when they were killed in the in the camps. So this is, you know, the Holocaust is very real for this um, Bakuni who's writing this article. So we want to we wanna understand it isn't easy, given our conditioning, it isn't easy to sit right in the middle of feeling tone, just feeling what we feel and not, not sort of believing the motivations, believing all the stuff that arises around the feeling. But we remember we can't stop those conditioned habits from arising all we can do is recognize 
It's all natural movement. It's all karma. It's all coming, those conditioned habits. It's just coming out of the past. That we can't do anything about. But we can practice, train the mind to relate to it with wisdom. Now, remember, like the nice thing about the mindfulness of breathing instructions, it reminds us that this learning to do this is is done best when we start with pleasant experience. So the Buddha encourages us to develop to develop a real steadiness and the pleasantness of a very steady, peaceful mind. And to start learning how to be with feeling, with pleasant feeling. Why not start there when we can? We all know that for the rest of the day when we're out in the world, it's not just going to be pleasant feeling. So to have that more intimate training time with relatively pleasant feelings is really useful. In a perfect world, the mind would drop into a deep state of absorption and then the mind would let go of its intention to sustain that absorption so the concentrated state would begin to dissipate and then the feelings would begin to diversify as the concentration faded. And it it would go from just learning to be with pleasant to learning to be with, you know, more diverse spectrum of feeling. And, you know, it's, it's relatively easy to understand equanimity, the non-attachment to feeling, when it's really pleasant. Because that's what the heart does when things are very pleasant, very quiet, very peaceful. The mind has this intuition that it's okay to stop struggling to make things nice. So it when the mind really rests, it rests in equanimity. This is the predominant characteristic of the deeper states of concentra- concentration, equanimity, stillness. It isn't like one of those more ecstatic, beautiful, pleasant, concentrated state. It's just very, very chilled out, peaceful, still. I used to have an image of like a a heart cave, like a a very, very quiet, recessed, protected, dark, but not in a bad way, place that was totally trustworthy, that kind of flavor of the deeper states of concentration. And so then the mind, uh, it realizes like, I don't have to struggle. I don't have to have opinions. And then it's just like sustaining that equanimity. So that's the formal practice, the meditative practice. And then what we want is that insight, the insight that equanimity with feeling is the way, is a way This is getting us closer to the third noble truth, which we'll talk about the last two weeks of our class. Right? Because the three insights, there is an origin of craving or an origin of suffering, which is the attachment to desire or craving. 
it should be abandoned. So here, the mind is observing that the attachment is unskillful. That's that. That's the insight. It should be abandoned. The Buddha is not saying try to get rid of it. It's saying recognize that it should be abandoned. That it's not skillful. It has been abandoned. That's the third insight in the second noble truth. There is a cause. It should be abandoned. It has been abandoned. It's been abandoned because it's being related to with wisdom. Feeling is being related to with wisdom, not attachment. So that just to keep it simple, relating to feeling with with attachment, liking and disliking, relating to feeling with wisdom. It's just feeling. So the next time you get something really painful arises, if you can remember, ask yourself in an honest way, is this is the unpleasantness of this dangerous? In other words, when the heart, when the mind relaxes and opens and receives the pain, does something bad happen? Or does the body-mind become enlivened by that opening, by that fearlessness? And again, don't believe anything, just experiment, actually see. And some of us, you know, we have painful Memories we can just bring up. We don't have to wait for the next bad thing to happen. We can just remember what that person said to us. You know? And so there we are and we're remembering and then there's that pain, that unpleasantness. And then the tendency with the attachment or the identification with the pain to want to proliferate as a way of not feeling it. So we'll think about it or plan our revenge or hope that something bad happens to the person. They get their just desserts. Thank God for karma. (laughs) And, uh, or we could open the door, you know, sort of, or lay down beside the unpleasantness, relax next to the unpleasantness, put our head in the beast, the mouth of the beast, or something like that, and see what happens. What happens when we practice non fear with the unpleasantness. And then when you get good with that, start looking for really happy times, moments of joy, and really relaxing with that, not being confused by the pleasant feelings that arise in our lives. Not feeling like there's something we have to do when it's really pleasant. But we can lie down next to that, relax with that, just let that be. So I'll leave it here. I'm guessing people might have some thoughts to share with the group. And of course, next week, it'd be nice to, especially if you have something to share in your small group about this dance, this place and practice of being with intense, pleasant and unpleasant feeling with wisdom. So you see that attachment, the misconstruing of the feeling has been abandoned. Like, what is that experience like in little and big ways? That would be great to share in the small groups next week. So questions or comments from your practice you'd like to share this time? Yeah, Roger. Um, so I'm wondering if, as you develop more wisdom or samadhi, the experience that comes into your life, is it fair to say that you would have less 
experience less pain, it's still going to come up, right? But you're, you're not personally yeah because you're not shooting stabbing yourself with the second arrow right so there's still the disappointments and they may because of the way the mind is conditioned be the cause of real pain like i'll give you an example because a lot of us from either meeting ajahn Sumedho or studying his teachings for many years we have the sense that he's a pretty wise person but it's interesting i've heard this from a number of people now that uh and he, he talks about it too in, in some of his talks and writings that because, you know, he's creating this monastic sangha in the West and it's problematic in all kinds of ways. And one of the ways it's really problematic is senior people like himself go through all these efforts to build these monasteries and to create these structures and these people come in and they have great dharma instincts and then they disrobe. You know, they're there for a year, they're there for 10 years, some of them 20 years, and they disrobe. And he talks about how painful that is. And some of you know Niels Heyman, and, uh, who's a longtime community member who now lives in San Francisco, but comes back and teaches a couple times a year here at Common Ground. We'll be here in July again teaching. And uh, he was at Amaravati for six or seven years, and he said when he left, Ajahn Sumedho just cried. You know, it was so the, so unpleasant of a feeling to see this person who we loved, I'm sure, and had this sense of uh, mutual appreciation for the monastic form, deciding it was better to le- leave it behind. So it's just a... And I've heard somebody say once, a long ago, about, you know, a, a wise person, an awake person is the first to cry the first to laugh, the first to smile, the first to, you know, that they're really touched. But it's something that happens and then ends. And I've noticed this in myself, like around the loss of my parents and other dear ones, Craig and Eric Stahl and Rini and people that I was close to who've died. And uh, I would just sort of be going about my day, and then there would be like a wave of sorrow, the unpleasantness of loss, and there would be these sort of heaves and sobs for, I'm not kidding, you know, 15, 20 seconds, and it would be over. And, uh, you know, wasn't, I wasn't trying to repress it or anything, it was just like, that was how it was, you know, it was like a wave of recognizing the loss and that perception, that experience is unpleasant. Loss is unpleasant. And it feels like this. But the mind didn't construct much around it. So it was just there, and then it was over. Many waves, not just one. But, uh, but they didn't last long, right? Because the mind didn't make it something, you know, didn't give it a head of steam, didn't start owning the pain. It's almost like being porous. So we have a choice. Like we can, we see pain coming at us. We can try to dodge it, which is stressful. We can, you know, try to defend ourselves, which is stressful. We can pretend it isn't so, which is stressful. Or we can be empty or porous and let it go right through us, which means complete vulnerability, but, and non-fear. 
So it's an act of faith. Yeah, thanks, Roger. Yeah, Leela. But it's amazing how subtle our resistance is. Like even the way you said that, it just points out how uh, how often, almost not not often, how we always want to make a deal. Like I'll open to you pain, I'll open to the pain of this remorse from these mistakes I've made if you go away. So we open to it as if it's not going to go away. Because it's like we're, we'd only want to make a deal if we're interpreting the painful experience as self. And that's exactly, that wrong view is exactly what we're transforming with this work on feeling. So we have to appreciate uh, how against the mind's conditioning this practice is. Right? We've the mind, the conditioned mind, has relied on feeling as it as for its barometer for what to do, and now we're and and, and pain and pleasure does teach us. I mean, it does tell us what to do. It it's and it's often important information, but the feeling that's coming from the past, a lot of that, like in terms of working through the regret and trying to figure out if there's any amends that needs to be made, or how this regret informs this present situation and how I can be skillful. We can't really do that work until we've made peace with the pain. Because if what I'm really doing is trying to get rid of the pain, I can't really let the pain of remorse inform how to be skillful in this moment. How did that thing I did a long time ago that was painful how can it teach me how to be skillful in this similar situation now that's triggering the memory, right? So we have to really make peace with the pain in, in order for the pain of remorse to be a skillful force in our life. Then it's like a road map or a, a road sign that's telling us, yeah, you're in a dangerous place, be careful. But otherwise, we're not being careful. We're trying to avoid feeling what we feel. So we're distracted by the pain, is, which is why we often repeat our mistakes because we don't know how to use the information of the pain, which is basically telling us, be careful, you're in a situation where you could make a mistake. And how do I know that? Because a situation in the past, I made that mistake and the pain is still there. That's how I know this is a dangerous situation in my life. But if I'm busily trying not to feel that pain or to blame somebody else for the pain I'm feeling or whatever other control technique, then we're not really using it the way that pain is meant to be used, which is to remind us to be careful, to pay attention. Can this be okay? I'm sorry. Well, you don't want to tell it it's a phantom. You want to realize that. So I would put, if you want to say it, I'd put it in terms of a question. What is this? Is this a personal problem? Because sometimes when we say something like, you're a phantom, it's like a wish. I'm really hoping you're not as real as you appear to be. And that that's often counterproductive because there's greed there. 
or fear there. And so it's more about curiosity. That's a better sign. Like if we're really curious about the feeling. Is it dangerous to relax with this? I wonder. Sure seems like it is. Let me see. I'll take a step toward it and see what happens. I'll put my little toe in. I'll put my foot in. I'll wade in a little deeper. Okay, I'm just going to dive in and see what happens. Yeah, Anne and then Rebecca. I'm just in the exploration staying here. Uh, when I start to feel like the self is sort of dissipating and the concept of what feeling or what my body is so it starts to feel like tracking energy in my body is sort of like like saison or it's like a structural thing that's really almost a landscape that I don't even I'm trying to see if this isn't the knee and this isn't the shoulder how energy is moving and um, and I'm starting to feel like there's a lot of space and uh, what's me is just really ripped apart and I don't even really know exactly. I start to see when sensation arises or feeling, it still is in a, a vernacular of something I've seen. For example, sort of sensation kind of marries with smell and color and flower-like things will happen or, or, or light filament like things will happen, but they will have a feeling tone uh, and a communication like in light or in like coloring. And I, I, so I think, well, is that a construction? Like, is it possible for the mind to really completely let go of its vocabulary that comes from looking at nature or, 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 or feeling the sun or any number of things? And as far as I get from like whatever any meaning means about what anything feels like or what part of my body is what, I still don't get away from sort of a God thing. <laughs> it's so weird. But like like there's a feeling tone of vibration of uh, something out there. I don't know. And, and do you think that's mental constructs that keep like And there's no end. See, this is the thing. We can, the mind, the conditioned mind can get attached to anything and especially subtlety and especially the subtlety of energy. It's endless, literally endless. And so, and the reason the mind is going there is because the mind isn't recognizing it's just pleasantness. So as the mind becomes more subtle, then this whole world of the subtlety of energy is fascinating to the conditioned mind. And it will play there in the same way that a corporate mogul will forever like buying and selling and taking over and controlling. Uh, more Someone who's interested in more subtle energies could spend their lifetime sort of playing in that world. But we, what you want to do is recognize it's just pleasant because it will, it will take the fascination the enchantment out of the experience. It will be just energy. And so the pursuit, there will be no need for the pursuit. Because are you interested in in accumulating subtle experiences or are you interested in being free no matter the experience? 
So you can ask yourself that question when you're in that place. We're a few minutes over, so we need to end here. Do you want to just say something very quick? Um, I just really appreciated that you brought up the um, becoming of the dependent origination thing tonight, because that made a lot of sense of what I've been noticing. What I'm seeing and then letting go, it just seems to keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. Like, I'll see and let go, and then something else, another becoming. And, and it's been feeling like, oh, I'm just getting deeper and deeper and deeper to the pain, you know, getting rid of the surface stuff. But then it's like... Wait a minute. And, and then it sometimes it feels like that, but then sometimes it feels like it's just the mind getting creative and trying to find another way to grab onto this again. Like, oh, it's just another way to grab. Right. So the, the becoming and the reminder of the karma and the, it's just like, oh, it, that even takes away all the minds. It takes away the personal, personal of the minds being creative. It's always, oh, of course. And that letting go too can be seen initially I'm that's the practice and then later it's just what happens. The letting go happens. So that can just be seen as a process. So we're a few minutes over. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Just enough time for a breath or two. Thanks, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.